The following message is brought to you by Morgan Hill Bible Church. For all things MHBC, connect with us on social media and check us out online at mhbible.org. Well, if you, uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, feel free to open them up. We are going to be <clears throat> continuing in our series. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, looking at the first part of Ephesians chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible, uh, the text for today should be in the, the handout that you received when you gathered here this morning when you came. I don't know about you, but one of the, the ways that I enjoy kind of unwinding at the end of, of a day, especially kind of on the weekend, I don't know what there is about weekends, but I love just to sit back sometimes and to watch a good movie, right? To watch a good movie. Now, I realize that I don't do this very much anymore, and it's not that I don't like good movies, but man, I don't know about the rest of you parents out there, but by 8.30 in the night, I put a movie on, and suddenly I wake up, and the movie is over, <laughs> And I missed half the plot. But pre-kids, I really enjoyed watching, watching movies. And I, I like lots of different kind of movies. But the, there's some that I really enjoy. And it's, it's those that they kind of keep you enthralled. And they pull you in the whole time. And then there's like a twist at the very end. And it like connects all these different dots, right? That suddenly everything else is different in the movie once you kind of know something that's revealed like right at, at the scene. Kind of a, a classic example. I hope I'm not ruining like a 20-year-old movie for anyone. But you're like, the kid sees dead people. Oh my goodness, Bruce Willis is dead the whole time, right? And you look back and like, that's why he can see it. Oh my goodness, right? I'm sorry if I just ruined it for those of you, but you had decades to watch it, so... <laughs> Right, But you go back, and once you know this revelation, it changes how you see everything else. Right? Paul talks about the gospel, about God's plan for the world in this way, and that that thing at the end of the story that changes how everything else is perceived is Jesus and his work and what he came to do. And that's why often we've seen it already, if you've been with us, and today he talks about it several times. He refers to this mystery, and this is not when we think of a mystery of the gospel, like something that we still don't understand, but it's something that wasn't seen for Fully until Jesus came, and then we can look back and see all these things that, that come together with the work that Jesus has done for us. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to look at three revelations of this great mystery of what Jesus has done for us. We're going to start in chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This first revelation that, that we have here in this passage of this mystery of Christ is the privileges, are the privileges of the gospel. The privileges that are received by us now that we have heard and received 
the gospel. The gospel literally means good news, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. This passage this morning, these whole 13 verses are actually interesting because it's the start of a prayer, right? So Paul says, for this reason, and he's going to continue into something else. If you, if you cheat and look at verse 14, which we'll get to next week, he says again, for this reason, right? So Paul is meaning to start praying here. And it's like, he gets so excited. He goes on like this tangent, all right? So literally, have you ever been in a conversation with someone and like a spark came in your brain and you just like went this way? Like apparently the Holy Spirit inspires that as well. Paul's going like this, and then he kind of goes on this tangent about his ministry to them that we're going to look at this morning that makes up these 13 verses. He says that, that he's received news of this mystery insight, not because of something special about him, not because of some mysterious thing that he did, but it was revealed to him by God. Right? It's been revealed in verse five by the holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. He's received direct revelation from God. And he talks about this that, that he has written before. It's most likely referring to the beginning of this book already, what, what they have already seen and heard. What's amazing here that, that he talks about when he talks about what God has given him, I love this phrase in verse two when he talks about his ministry that God's called him to. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I love that idea that as followers of Jesus, we're to be stewards of God's grace in our lives. See, grace, and we looked at this especially two weeks ago. He talks about this so clearly in the first half of chapter two. Grace is a gift from God that allows us to be saved. It fully flows from God. It's not earned. Salvation is entirely God's favor on us, not because of works. But notice, grace that God gives us is also something that we, we first receive it for salvation, but second, we receive it to steward it to others. See, a steward is someone who takes care of something for someone else, and it does not belong to them, right? A steward of a house is there and there to help manage it and to take care of it and to provide for the people of it, but they always recognize, I do not own this. This belongs to someone else. And as stewards of God's grace, we can realize, hey, we have been given something by God. This grace has been given to us and we can steward it to others, recognizing that I don't own this. This is not mine, but this is God's that he allows and entrusts to us. See, for Paul, when grace is rightfully understood, that grace makes huge claims upon our lives. Grace makes significant claims upon how we live our life. It gives us this responsibility. It's not just, okay, I've received grace from God for my own personal benefit. But Paul said, no, I've been shown grace and now I'm responsible to steward that grace to others. So how, how can we be faithful stewards? Well, first and simply is to live out the grace of God each and every day in our lives. That the grace that we've received from God flows through us in our relationships with others. That we are living out the gospel in tangible ways each and every day, showing that love of Jesus Christ <coughs> to others. And then secondly, we're faithful stewards when we share that grace with others through words, not just with deeds. Right? For Paul, there was no separation of this. It wasn't just live a certain way and assume people know why. 
but he was always very explicit on sharing this gift that he had received from Jesus. And so we are challenged to to be faithful stewards of what God has given us, this grace that he has bestowed on our lives. Verse six is kind of the pinnacle of this first paragraph here. He talks about how this mystery of what Jesus has done is this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Last week, we looked at this unique Jew and Gentile relationship and how in Jesus, they find unity in him. And he is referring back to that here. It's interesting, verse six, actually, it's, it's, it's hard to pick up in our English translation because they have to make sense of it for us. But this is one of these things that's lost in translation if, if we don't go back and look at it originally. But these three phrases, fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise, each of those are actually one word. And each of them begin with a preposition with. Back in that time, and in different languages as well, to add a preposition, it literally made, it went on to the word and it became a compound word. Now, this is interesting because he's just done this in the previous passage at the end of chapter 2. Back in chapter 2, verse 19 to 22, the words fellow citizens is the same kind of compound word. Joined together in verse 21 and then built together in verse 22 is the same threefold compound word adding with at the beginning here. And so he's pointing back to what he just highlighted in chapter two and continuing it in chapter three, talking about this unity that now exists between these boundaries, these gaps that the world divided between Jew and Gentile. He's saying it comes together in Jesus, that we are with one another. So this first with in verse six, we are fellow heirs in Jesus. We are fellow heirs with one another. It highlights that in Jesus, all of us, all who are believers in Jesus are children of God. There's no, you're a full child and you're a part child. There's no, you're this child and you're a half sibling. No, all are children of God. He makes this clear in Galatians chapter three, verse 29. He says this, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It wasn't just the Jewish people who had a hope to look forward to now, but it's anyone who's in Jesus has this sure hope that we can hold on to and look forward to in the future. Not only are we fellow heirs, we are also members of the same body each a full part of the community of faith that God has made. This is referencing back to when he said that Jesus came, abolished the hostility and came to create one new man, one new humanity in him. That each of us from our backgrounds and our differences in Jesus are part of the same body together functioning as a whole. We are members of the same body. And then lastly, we are partakers of the promise that we are fellow partakers in the promise. This idea of a partaker is, is a sharing of a common possession amongst one another, right? Sharing of a common possession. It's like if you and your sibling both have a car and you have to share it, right? Some of you are like looking at each other like, oh, I remember that, right? It's like, oh no, it's my car, but it's also my car. And you have to figure out how to do this together because it's not one or yours, it's both of yours. And you have to share it. This promise is ours together. It's not one or the other. It's both of our promises together, Jew and Gentile alike in Jesus. 
Once as Gentiles, we were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now in Jesus, we are partakers of the promise together because of what he has done. Notice that when Paul talks about what Jesus has done for us, there are both individual and communal aspects to it. It's both a personal thing that God does for us and a corporate thing in which God places us into. And we can't neglect one or the other. We have to see both of those and that they go hand in hand. See, sometimes in our world, especially, it's easy for us to, to emphasize this individual aspect of a relationship with Jesus, which is certainly true and exists, right? That you and God have a unique and special relationship, that God chooses you as an individual, that you as an individual have to respond in faith to what Jesus has done for you. But it's true that there's also a collective part of it as well. Right, that when God chooses you, he doesn't just leave you as an individual, but there's this with component that finds itself that you are now a part of something else. See, one of our core values here at the church is that together is better than alone. We believe in this idea of community that together is better than alone because we see passages like this and we realize that the gospel is to be lived out both individually as well as collectively together. And the gospel transforms and brings us into a community. If, if the gospel work brings us into a community, then we cannot become who we were meant to be in Jesus apart from this community in which we are a part of. And so the gospel has both individual implications in our lives, but it has corporate ind indications as well. He continues in, in this explanation of the mystery that he has received. Verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. See, the second revelation of this mystery that Paul talks about here is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel, both that he has experienced in his life and has experienced collectively in the church. See, he says his, his message that he has is to proclaim in verse 10 or verse 9. I love that. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable riches. You will never get to the bottom of all that you have in Jesus. This is one of the beauties of being a Christian. I remember... When I, uh, when I went to Bible school as a you know, late teenager and I was like, man, what's going to happen when I finish college and I know everything there is to know about the Bible? What's it going to be like? And then you graduate from grad school and you feel like you knew less than you did seven years ago when you started. You're like, there is so much in Jesus that we will never get to the bottom of it. And just when we think we've really gotten there, we realize there is more depth, there is more to Jesus than we ever could have imagined. The unsearchable riches of Jesus. And to bring to light, 
He says to, to show on the world what God has done, this unity that exists in the church between Jew and Gentile. Notice verse 10. I don't know when you read your Bible, if you ever read it, and then you go, wait, what? And you have to read it again. That's verse 10 to me when I read this passage, right? So look at verse 10. So that through the, the church, that's you and me, that's us, that's Christians gathered together. Through the church, the wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. All right, we've already talked about, and we're gonna to continue to see in Ephesians, these rulers and authorities. This is the demonic world, those who are in rebellion, the spirits rebelling against God. You know what Jesus does, what God does to point to his wisdom in all things, his superiority, his greatness, is he points down to us. He points to his church. Because the church properly understood and living out the gospel is a declaration of the power of God, so much so that it's a testimony even to the forces that would push back against us. It's an earthly showing of this heavenly picture of all people gathered together for all of eternity in Jesus. See, the gospel is powerfully seen in real flesh in God's people coming together under his name to worship him. That's why the church rightfully seen and understood in its unity is to be from all backgrounds and walks of life because it's a testimony to the power of God in the world. That's why a healthy and growing church is not just everyone looks the same and acts the same and is the same, but it shows this variety that exists in Jesus Christ that we as the body of Christ are older and younger. We are wealthy and we are not so wealthy, that we at this place come from backgrounds. We are here, we come from Catholic backgrounds, Baptist, Lutheran, non-denominational, Methodist. We come from no religious backgrounds, but in Jesus together, we find unity. And this is a beautiful, a beautiful picture of the power of Christ. That we all come from different places and different walks of life, yet in Jesus, he's united us to be one. See, the church's unity puts on display the power of God to our world and for eternity also. The gospel, he says, was given to him in verse seven by the working of God's power. The working of God's power. Paul here is most likely thinking of his own story, his own story on how he grew up a very devout religious Jew and was opposed to this Messiah. So much so opposed that he was actively going out and persecuting, having Christians being arrested and tortured and killed. And Paul was actually traveling from one town to another when Jesus, after he was resurrected, Jesus appeared to Paul, transformed and changed his entire life. And he's saying, this, this life that I live, is not a result of my own abilities, but it shows the testimony of the power of the gospel to change my life. See, we all have a faith story to the power of the gospel in our lives. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have a faith story of how God is powerful. The gospel is powerful because of what he's done in your life. Now, it looks different for each and every one of us. And I know if for some of you, I know this has been true for me lots of times in my life. Are you ever envious of other people's stories of the gospel in their lives, all right? Especially if you grew up in the church. So I, I grew up um, in the church. It was kind of like if the church was open, we were there. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, 
right? And so, so I kind of goofy and sarcastically tell people, well, I was saved at a young age in kindergarten out of a life of depravity of cutting in line and stealing pencils from my neighbor. You know, like there, there wasn't a lot of depravity at five years old that was evidenced in my life versus some who got saved later in life. But our stories are all this, that it shows the power of God at work in our lives, that it shows this testimony of what the gospel can do when it's received with power. Now notice for Paul, recognizing the power of the gospel, what Jesus has done in our lives. Notice what it leads to in him. Look at verse eight. It was affected to him, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. See, when we grasp the power of the gospel, it results in radical humility in our lives. Understanding the power of what Jesus has done for us results in radical humility. He says here that he is the very least of all the saints. The literal translation there is, I am less than the least. He makes up this like superlative statement to talk about how unqualified, unworthy he was of God's grace. See, Paul is conscious of his own unworthiness to be chosen and to be used by God. He doesn't lose it. He's writing this decades after his conversion story and still at the forefront of his mind is this, that I cannot believe that God would choose to save and to use someone like me. It results in this humility in his life. See, humility is this interesting thing in the Christian life in all of life, right? Humility is not this thing that we get by trying to do it, right? Humility is not achieved in life if you wake up tomorrow morning, like today my goal is to be humble. And every opportunity, I'm gonna be humble, I'm gonna be humble. You know, humility is really the outworking of God's grace in our lives. It's focusing on other things. I'm reminded of when C.S. Lewis wrote about humility in a well-known expression. He talks about what would happen if you ran into someone who was truly humble? What would they be thinking of? And he, he ends his phrase by saying this, his paragraph. He says, this person will not be thinking about humility because they will not be thinking about themselves at all. See, a truly humble person is not thinking about how humble they are. They aren't even thinking of themselves at all. See, we are so self-centered in our worlds. All of us, right? We are so self-centered, myself included. We wake up every morning and our world revolves around us. But what happens is when we rightfully grasp what God has done for us in Jesus, when we rightfully grasp the power of the gospel, suddenly our selfishness fades away because we see our lives in light of who Jesus is. And humility results not when we focus on us being humble. Humility results when we focus on the greatness of Jesus our unworthiness that he would choose to love us, to use us, to provide for us each and every day. Humility is a byproduct of rightly living in light of the gospel, which is why it's so important for us to remind ourselves every day of the gospel in our lives. Because every day we wake up self-centered and selfish and the world revolving around us. And that's why we need the gospel, not just when we are saved. We need the gospel, not just on Sundays. We need the gospel each and every day to remind ourselves again of what Jesus has done for us, to draw our focus off of ourselves and on to him. 
he concludes his little interlope here in verse 11. He says this, this, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This third revelation here is the purpose of the gospel. It talks about the the purpose of the gospel. In verse 11, according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He's referencing back in verse 10 when he talked about how at the fullness of time, what was God going to do? He was going to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth under Jesus. Saying this has now happened, that Jesus brings all of these things together. And he he talks about here real quickly, two implications of living out this purpose. What does it look like that God unites all things to him? How does that radically change how we live? Well, for Paul, it was two things. First, in verse 13, it affected how he looked at hardship. Realizing that all things have been united to Jesus, that all things revolve around him, that even for him, his suffering, his pain could be repurposed and used by God beyond his own understanding. Remember, Paul writes this letter from prison. He's locked up. He has no idea what his future may hold, what suffering he will continue to endure. But realizing the purposes of Jesus, it transforms his own view of his pain and suffering. But not only that, it can transform how we pray as well. Notice verse 12. This purpose realized in Jesus Christ the Lord, in whom, that's in Jesus, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now, these two words, boldness and access, are the the two most common words used in the New Testament when talking about prayer and our relationship as people with God. Now, this is unique because this is the only place in Scripture where these two words are combined next to each other to talk about it. So Paul's kind of taking, hey, I normally use these two words. I'm going to put it together so you really get how amazing this is. We are united to Jesus, and we have boldness and access together. Not just boldness, not just, but we have both of these things in our our relationship with Jesus. He's making this a strong declaration so they understand who they are in Jesus and how that means they can now approach the Father. He says that they can approach God. Now, we can approach God with boldness, with boldness. I remember a a video from several years ago that is all too relatable now to probably most of us. I don't know if you remember this video. I I love showing videos and the fact we don't have screens out here, man. Someday we'll be inside and we'll have screens and I can show you all these videos that I think of. But there was this video from several years ago and I believe it was an overseas um, newscast and it was a guy in his office and this was a very serious setting, right? He's on a, a, a weekly news segment and he's reporting about something very serious in his home office study when in the background his like three-year-old opens the door and she just kind of waddles right in and she's making sound right because for her this is not some special person this is just dad and she walks in to dad's office like she's always done and the video gets even funnier right because his wife is like falling on the background and trying to scramble she's knocking over stuff as she's pulling the kid out and that's so relatable because I don't know about you but I've lost count of the times that I've walked in on my wife's zoom meetings while she's working and I walk in I'm like 
I'm not supposed to be here, right? But I walk in because I think this is where I belong. I don't have to knock. This is my house. But no, I, I walk in with, with boldness. That way your, your kid, if you're a parent, that way your kid interrupts you and has no idea that you're doing anything else other than caring for them. Just that audacity, just to show up at any time and to ask you something. That's kind of that audacity that we have and should have with God. A boldness just to show up anytime, anywhere, unannounced to walk in and go to God. Not having to worry about what his response will be. We can have boldness. We can have confident access to him. Hebrews chapter four, verse 16 reminds us, it says that let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, because of what Jesus has done for us, because of what Jesus has done for us, when we go to God, God will never turn us away. God will never turn you away. Why? Because of who you now are, because you are united to Jesus, you have access to him. God is available to us because of who we are in Jesus. It's not that God has changed, but our status to him, our relationship with him has changed. And we now have this confident access before him. So you remember pictures that, that I always found fascinating are, are when there's a president, a leader in our country in the White House who has young kids. And I remember a, a picture that went from many years ago when President Obama was the president. And this was early on when his, when his two daughters were very young. It was them kind of walking in and like one was playing on the couch. And I think one was like, I think sitting on his desk. I don't remember exactly, right? But, but this is the most powerful man in the world and the most powerful room in the world. And these kids just walk in like they own the place, right? Does, does the president, see, does he cease to be president? Is he any less than the most powerful man in the world at that point? No. What is the difference? Why do these two people get to do this and no one else does? Well, they have a special relationship with him. They have access to him because of who they are. And they can approach him differently than anyone else can. See, God is the king over all things, the ruler over all things, the creator of the world. This does not mean that God is any less than who he has always been, the most magnificent God of all glory, power, and wisdom. What has changed is now our relationship to him in Jesus, is that we have access to God because of what Jesus has done for us. And so because of that, we can ask ourselves this question, what do, what do we need from God today? I can ask you, what do you need from God today? What do you need in your life? Do you need wisdom? Do you need patience? Do you need understanding? Do you need rest? What do you need from God today? Because here's the thing, our God is a God who loves to give good gifts to his children. And because of Jesus, we can walk in and push open the doors of heaven and come before his throne with boldness and with access, not because he is any less than the great God over all things, but because of who we all now are in Jesus. So what do you need from him today? As we close this morning, I would challenge you just to take a few moments in the quietness right now and approach God 
with boldness because you can, because he encouraged us to knowing that he will listen to us. So let's bring our requests, what we have on our hearts, let's bring it to God as we pray together this morning. God, we thank you that you hear each and every prayer from our hearts. God, and your word promises that that even those things that are too deep for us to express your spirit and Jesus intercede on our behalf. God, we thank you that we have access to you because of what Jesus has done for us. God, I pray that, that this type of humility that Paul talks about, because he's realized who he is in light of what Jesus has done for him, would be true in our lives. God, that we would be walking testimonies of your grace, your goodness, your love, your mercy in our worlds. Because God, we have all experienced the power that comes with Jesus Christ changing our lives. And so we ask that we would represent you well, that the gospel would be lived and seen in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Continue the conversation with us on social media. Never miss a message and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes.